Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. In this episode, we are pleased to have CFTC Commissioner Russ Benham. Commissioner Benham has been at the CFTC since June of 2017. As a member of the commission, Commissioner Benham sponsors the Market Risk Advisory Committee that has made a lot of news lately for the timely report on market risks related to climate change. In fact, Commissioner Benham testified yesterday before the House Select Committee on Climate Change, and we will get to that shortly. Before joining the commission, Commissioner Benham worked on the Senate Agriculture Committee staff, which has jurisdiction over the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the U.S. Derivatives Markets. Welcome, Commissioner, to FI Speaks. Thanks, Walt. It's great to be with you. Well, I wanted to launch in. A lot of our viewers may not know your background and how you came to the commission and your interest in climate change. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about your background and, and why you are interested in, in this issue. So let's talk about your, your background and how you became a commissioner. Sure. Uh, you know, my, my first few um, uh, positions out, out of college were in financial markets and the law. I was an equity trader for a little bit over a year uh, immediately after um, college many, many years ago. Um, and that was sort of my first experience into markets. It was great. I loved trading. Uh, and it really gave me this sort of firsthand um, exposure to how markets function, how any number of financial, geopolitical, or social issues can affect markets on a day-to-day basis. Um, after that, I went to law school, uh, spent a few years uh, in upstate New York, actually interned as a as a uh, first-year law student uh, at the CFTC's office in New York uh, in the enforcement division. So that was my first real exposure to the CFTC and the divisions and how the agency functioned, uh, which in retrospect was a great experience to not only get exposure to the CFTC's work, but even meet a lot of folks at the CFTC in New York that I, I know now in my current position. Uh, after the after after law school, I worked at the New Jersey Attorney General's office, which is where I, I am originally from and grew up. Uh, and I worked at the New, New Jersey AG's Bureau of Security, so sort of state securities regulation. Uh, and then a few years uh, in private practice in New York, um, corporate law, fund formation, and then representing public companies. After uh, my time at the law firm, I spent about two years, uh, a little bit of an entrepreneurial um, uh, phase in my life. I started uh, what amounted to really uh, a regional airline that was based out of Chicago. Um, Some of the FIA members I know are based out of the Midwest and um, helped a friend uh, uh, who I went to college with. We started an airline that flew from Chicago Midway uh, up to northern Michigan, which is a, a nice spot for folks in the Midwest. They go for summer holiday uh, and whatnot. So those were a few uh, professional experiences from from my time after university. But then after that, uh, I came down to D.C. in 2011. And as you mentioned, 
Uh, I joined the staff of Debbie Stabenow, Michigan Democrat, on, on the Agriculture Committee, and she had just become chairwoman of the committee. And my focus was CFTC issues. As you, as you mentioned, the committee has oversight jurisdiction over the, uh, the CFTC. So very interesting time to be on the Hill and, and with uh, the committee of jurisdiction, given Dodd-Frank had just passed and the implementation uh, of the uh, you know, new swaps regime uh, and figuring out, I think, how everything was going to work in a new environment post-financial crisis as we were emerging from, from that in 2008 and 2009. Spent six years on the committee. It was a great experience. Really got to know the agency well, the sort of nuts and bolts of how the agency works, both from a structural standpoint uh, and just the day-to-day work of the agency and how it interacts with uh, market participants and stakeholders. Uh, and then that led me to the commission in 2017, and it's been great. It's been three years, and you know I can't emphasize enough. I think all those previous professional experiences from from trading to the law firm. Uh, to even starting a business and then obviously working in the Senate is a a good combination and a good mix that I think is allowing me to see more clear and and be a better commissioner and engage with folks and understand the dynamics of both private market and users and, of course, uh, financial institutions. I'm just curious. Everybody, you know, has some jump that they make from the private world to the public service world. What what was that for you? I mean, what caused you to want to work in the Senate? Did you have somebody there that uh, expressed an interest for, for you? Or or was it just the fact that you had this background and wanted to serve the public? What, what was it that actually got made you want to take that jump into public service? I, I certainly always wanted public to do to participate in public service, I felt a little bit of an obligation, um, I think, but also something that I thought would help my career uh, and something that I thought would just sort of be fulfilling to sort of understand the role of government in our country and how I could sort of support and play a role in that learning policy, learning how to help people um, and just using whatever skills I had at the time to participate in, the, in a general policy discussion. Interestingly enough, the actual um, sort of series of events that brought me to the Senate was a conversation with a friend's dad um, many, many years ago, who was um, a pretty prominent tax attorney, corporate tax attorney. And I was just asking advice as many, you know, young professionals do, or you have mentors or friends or folks you sort of look up to. And as an attorney, he was an attorney as well. I asked him, you know, any thoughts or recommendations on a next step or how I should um, think about my career and the sort of full arc of the career. And interestingly enough, and it was a complete surprise to me, uh, he told me, he said, if you want to be a great lawyer, you got to go work on the Hill. Uh, and he used the analogy of a brain surgeon these days. It's not like you, if you go to, you know, I'm here, I, I live in Baltimore with my family. If you go to Hopkins and, um, and talk to a brain surgeon at Hopkins, they're not even necessarily a, a brain surgeon. Generally, they, they focus on specific elements of the brain. There's so much specificity and expertise and and that was really his point of why, you know, to be a great lawyer, to go on the Hill, uh, you get this experience, which is unique and, and second to none. And at the time, I didn't quite understand it because I was new to, to policy, new to D.C., really, in many respects. I went to college in D.C., but I never interned uh, or worked on the Hill um, or in any policy position. But having worked on the Hill for six and a half years and having been a part of, you know, major legislation in, in the 2014 Farm Bill, you can really understand from a legal perspective, being able to engage with stakeholders, being able to engage 
with elected officials from across the country, right? I grew up in northern New Jersey, uh, the tri-state area, and we obviously have a unique culture and values and a way of life, and it's great, but it's very different from uh, folks in Atlanta or folks uh, in Chicago or folks in Phoenix or California um, or, or Memphis, anywhere across the country. You know, and, and I think it was a great experience to get to know people, to understand and appreciate um, the different parts of our country and what matters to different parts of uh, to people in different parts of the country. And I think that gave me um, a really good sense uh, of both public policy, but then also in the process of making and advising uh, a member on producing law, uh, what it takes to understand and be the sort of, you know, as, as my friend's father said, the best lawyer I can be. So interesting route, interesting advice, but I think the, the point that I take away is obviously open engagement, listening to folks and, and just trying things, taking a little bit of risk here and there and um, putting your head down, working hard and, you know, good things can happen. You know, I've always loved the fact that our industry is a bit esoteric, a bit unique, as you as you referenced, a little bit of of niche brain surgery. I mean, I, that is a sort of point of pride that it's an interesting area of law that a lot of people don't know about. And it's good to hear that others find that a value as well. I, I'm just curious, as you came to the commission as a commissioner, uh, I'm sure you had views about what it was going to be like and what your focus might be. How has that evolved over time? Like, wh where is it that you think you add the most value as a commissioner coming down uh, from Capitol Hill? Really, you know, what, what I found what I found most interesting in, in three years, it's gone by super quick. Um, it feels like yesterday that I was sworn in, but we've done so much in the past three years. It's pretty remarkable. And I've said this to a few people, uh, the job now, you know, as opposed to when I was in the Senate and advising Senator Stabenow on policy related to the CFTC and other matters, um, like I said earlier, the, the job was very similar to what I do now in respect of meeting folks, engaging with stakeholders, understanding policies, and understanding the challenges that stakeholders are facing and market participants, market participants are facing and then being able to react in a sensible way, balancing the issues and balancing the interests of the entire sort of value chain. And that's customers, that's, you know, FCMs, um, that's the exchanges and the clearinghouses and, and the intermediaries and everyone in between down to the farmer and rancher or the IB and the AP. So, you know, having this engagement with them, meeting with them on a day-to-day -day basis, understanding the law and understanding the policy that drives it, Obviously, post-crisis and the you know Dodd-Frank reforms adds a whole different set of uh, interesting dynamics to the conversation. But as I transitioned to the CFTC, it was often the same individuals that I met with that have become friends over the years that I've you know been a part of their lives in many respects, seen them at FIA conferences or other events as well. Uh, but like I said, instead of advising uh, Senator Stabenow now, you know I'm a part of the decision-making process as a member of the commission. So. Uh, in many respects, a smooth transition, um, but I had to elevate, obviously, uh, my game to an extent to, to be the principal and to start making decisions and to start calculating all the different um, um, issues and challenges that I think we face as a commission and trying to do my best to make the, the best outcome and best decision possible for the for the markets.
You know, I had actually a similar uh, a similar experience as your as you coming off the hill, um, and I'll admit I had a bit of a difficult transition going from staffing a principal to principal. You know, I think you have to to figure out. Okay, now the decision lies with me, and I I you know, and it's it's at times a bit daunting when you're first doing it, and clearly you have come into your own as a principal. Um, but at first, it was it was a difficult transition, and it sounds like you may have had the same experience. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt it's an in- interesting transition. You and I probably talked about it before I started. I've talked to certainly other commissioners and chairs and other individuals who have been in similar spots, but um, I wouldn't trade the experience in the Senate for anything. It was one of the things that I value most in my professional life and my personal life. And every day that um, I work and, and, you know, head to the office or, you know, work from home these days, I, I learn and use some skills that I, I um, uh, you know, uh, used on, on the Hill. And you mentioned I testified before the House yesterday, and there were certainly hard questions, and it was a unique opportunity. But again, those were skill, skills that I learned uh, working in the Senate as a staffer to understand the types of questions I might get and the type of responses that you know, obviously stick to the facts and what's appropriate and what my beliefs are, but, um, you know, ensuring that I'm being polite and respectful of the committee, its members and and the process. So um, something that I would encourage all young people, either in college or thinking about a career, you know, working in D.C. is certainly an exciting opportunity and and working in the policy space. um, Again, just opens your your eyes and your mind to so many different uh, both opportunities in, in different parts of our country, which are so unique and, and so great and make our country uh, the, you know, as, as wonderful as it is. Well, we will get to your house testimony because that was an important, um, you know, event yesterday that you testified before the house. But um, let's first, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, 2020 and the coronavirus you know, I, I think that is a, a, a big uh, uncertain time that happened this spring, you know, with the pandemic and how that has affected everybody globally. But in particular, I want to focus on the agency and, and how that transition of, you know, working as an agency with, you know, there's a lot of collaboration and a commission, as you can imagine, uh, the listeners must must understand. Um, to all of a sudden working remotely, um, the entire commission working remotely, and the the advice that commissioners get from staff, and and even the process involved with making decisions uh, changed dramatically as a result of that. So tell us a little bit about you know how this went down in March when the agency decided to work remotely, and how that impacted your day to day job. Sure. You know, I, we all dealt with it. It was early March. I think it was March 6th was a Friday and it kind of felt like that was the day. And I could, I could be wrong on the days, the specific day, but it felt like in that, that early March period, the entire, you know, country decided to shift that we had to go to remote working and change the the way of our, our lives. Um, and, you know, I think we all worked together, uh, certainly the chairman, uh, making the final call, but he was uh, certainly gracious to work with the other commissioners and talk through the issues, how would it would work for the agency, how it would work for each of our offices. I would say, as a general matter, uh, the success of the agency since March is a testament to its staff. Um, they are dedicated civil servants. They care deeply about their job. 
um, and what they do. And they were all prepared for this. Um, obviously, we've all had to deal with the challenges at home in our personal life. And then to blend that with our professional transition and challenges uh, has not been, you know, uh, easy for anyone, uh, maybe easier for some than others because of different circumstances or situations, but certainly um, uh, a transition that I think none of us would have expected at the at the early part of the year in January and February. That said, um, as we sort of moved into the middle and later part of, of March, I would say we leveraged the tools that we had sort of embedded in the CFTC's infrastructure for a number of years. And that included remote working, that included um, working from home on one or two days a week, uh, that included a really well-built-out um, technology infrastructure that al allows us to have both hardware and the software needed to communicate with each other, both from an audio perspective and a video perspective. So as we slowly sort tra transitioned in that month of March, I think we figured out um, fairly quickly, uh, yeah, obviously in consultation with the market, we took a lot of action to support the market transition and the volatility that was happening in that March, April period. I think we quickly figured out that we could do this. Um, it was obviously, again, a, a, a testament to the dedication of the staff, but I think at a leadership level, the commissioners all decided that this was an opportunity we needed to take to keep, of course, our staff safe and everyone in the building safe and healthy to allow them to focus on, on their families to the extent necessary, but also to keep the, the business of the agency going. So it was an extraordinary period as it was for a lot of uh, your listeners, certainly, and I think the private market participants. Um, but it was one, I think, that we we kept our head down. Um, we, we made sure the conversations were inclusive. We focused on the priorities of health and safety for sure, uh, but we leveraged the tools that we had um, at the agency to make sure the transition uh, went well. And, you know, in many respects, as I look back on it, given what I said earlier about the fact that we had remote, remote working policies and we had the hardware and software really in place, uh, we were just kind of turning the dial, right? We were turning it from one day a week or two days a week to, you know, five days a week. Um, and, and that all said, I would, I would also give a huge shout out to the staff that does go into the office. And I'm sure a lot of businesses and companies know the sort of essential workers. And as you know, we see in in, in civil society, the essential workers are those who provide food and, and healthcare services, the frontline workers who've done an amazing job. Um, but from a CFTC you know, perspective, and I'm sure from a lot of uh, financial institution perspective, it's the IT folks, uh, it's the security folks, uh, it's the individuals that have to go in so that you know the machines are running and that people like myself and, and my colleagues can work from home and have uh, you know computer systems that operate, phone lines that work so that we can continue doing the, the work of the business. And if you look at the period between March and today, we've had a number of open meetings. We've continued our enforcement work um, and they've all gone very well. And we've had a, a number of advisory committee meetings as well. All the commissioners have across the board. So we figured out a way to make it work. Uh, we continue to be flexible, I think, and thoughtful in terms of inter interaction with the, the private market so that uh, we understand that their conditions, both on a sort of personnel level, but a markets level. Um, and, and I think we're going to remain sort of adaptive and, and cognizant to the issues that we're going to face. I don't think we're quite out of it, but clearly, you know, from a market's perspective, things have calmed down and they, you know, sort of gone back to normal um, to an extent. Uh, but there's still probably some volatility ahead and a lot of uncertainties ahead. So we're prepared for that. Um, and I think we're going to be ready to, to adapt and, and take action when needed uh, in a pretty uh, determinative way.
And you, and you uh, reference possible volatility ahead, and clearly there's some concerns around the presidential election that there may be additional market volatility. Uh, tell us a little bit about the next few weeks as far as the CFTC, you know, what's on its agenda, uh, and if there's any preparations, uh, again, besides sort of the normal surveillance of the markets and making sure that uh, there's liquidity in the markets, but is there anything that you're doing in preparation of that volatility um, um, based around a close presidential election? Yeah, you know, I don't think there's anything unusual that we're doing. I think given the experience that we had in the March-April period, um, we have sort of all systems go uh, in terms of preparation and our eyes open to sort of different scenarios and possibilities. Um, again, that, that March-April period, unprecedented in so many respects in terms of liquidity and, and price dislocation and volume. Um, it, it's hard to imagine, although you know, knock on wood here, that we could um, surpass some of the the experience and then this activity that we saw in that period. That said, you know, I think we were all really pleased with the the market infrastructure and the way the the markets um, handled that volume and that liquidity and that volatility. Uh, and you know, we're prepared for it. We anticipate it. We think about these and that um, very common extreme but plausible scenarios that we we use within the agency and that the market uses from a risk management perspective. So um, I don't think anything unusual or out of out of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, but just staying focused on our game plan, the one that's worked historically uh, and, and trusting it and, and knowing that sure, we're gonna hit volatility, whatever happens uh, in November, or as we see the coronavirus, um, you know, evolve uh, in, in potentially different ways, but I think we're, we're ready for it and then folks are prepared and, um, to do what, whatever's needed. You know, I think the market is in the same position. I think, you know, we have some lessons learned from the spring, um, you know, to make sure that there's proper liquidity and risk management around that volatility. Uh, but people know that there's the potential for volatility around the election, and we're already meeting to discuss how we to manage that. Um, so the markets are, are certainly preparing for that possibility. Uh, and we're better off because of the spring lessons learned on how we might how, my, how we might deal with it. And certainly it's in close coordination with the CFTC um, on how we would do that. I do want to jump into um, you know, the, the climate change topic with you. And as I mentioned in my introduction, you oversee an advisory committee of the CFTC. And for those that are listening, advisory committees are committees that commissioners sponsor, and they are made up of private sector individuals on a specific topic. So Commissioner Benham oversees the Market Risk Advisory Committee, but there are there's global advisory committees, there's technology advisory committees uh, that the different commissioners of the CFTC run. But in, on, in particular, uh, this Market Risk Advisory Committee that's sponsored by Commissioner Benham has identified climate change as an issue, a risk to the marketplace. And in fact, a subcommittee of the MRAC recently issued a 165-page comprehensive report on the impact of climate change on the financial markets. And this is really a first of its kind re report that got a lot of media attention. Um, I think the New York Times and the Washington Post and others covered its release because of the breadth of its recommendations and the boldness of its recommendations around 
the, the potential for climate change to impact financial services. So to Commissioner Benham, to, for, to you, what is the significance of this report from your vantage point and what would you say are the main takeaways? So I, I think it's very significant because it's, like you said, the first of its kind. Um, I often think about, you know, when, when you ask, I think if you were to survey 100 people, what do they think about when you talk about climate change? You know, and I don't know this from any statistics or data, but this is just my, my, my guess is that most f- folks would focus on environmental degradation. They would focus certainly on energy production and energy sourcing. Uh, and to an extent, they would they would focus on human health. We've obviously in the devastation with the wildfires out west and flooding in the, in the Gulf Coast region just this past year, but for for years past as well. Infre- or more infrequently, folks will mention the economy and financial markets and the financial markets that underpin our economy. And uh, a lot of work has been done in the space overseas. And and as I started as a commissioner in seventeen, and a lot of this goes to my time on on the Hill, specifically working on the Agriculture Committee. In addition to talking and thinking about CFTC policy, um, the Hill is naturally a sort of all hands on deck environment. So I, I I I handled a number of agricultural policy issues and agricultural constituencies are a huge part of the CFTC's work on a day-to-day basis. And you just think about the relationship between climate change and agriculture. I mean, climate is ag and agriculture in many respects. Uh, It it drives the success or failure of any uh, growing season. And as I sort of just started to think about that, and you kind of expand that scope to what climate change could do to our economy and the financial markets that underpin it, um, you know, the the scenarios and the possibilities really are, in many respects, um, very wide, and, and they, there's a huge tail risk possibility. And, and you're seeing that now. Again, unfortunately, the reality is climate uh, is changing, and you're seeing these different events happen across the country and the world, and they're affecting economies at a sort of uh, – uh, there's a term used in the report, subsystemic level, potentially, where local economies and communities are being affected from credit and liquidity to um, you know an individual's ability to live in a certain place or get insurance for a home or a commercial building. So I thought it was important to tackle this issue, to get a diverse coalition of members uh, to think about the issue who are experts in the space and to provide recommendations um, that you know hopefully regulators could consider uh, in due time. And, and given the fact that this issue hasn't been really examined or studied, I think holistically from a US perspective, I thought it was important to do uh, a more of a comprehensive look at the financial markets. It's a lesson learned from 2008, and I often say this as well: markets are interconnected. We learned that, you know, again in the March-April period. You know, we can certainly focus on derivatives markets, but if you, you know, pull on one string, whether it's securities or derivatives or, um, or you know, any number of, uh, of markets, uh, whether it's cash treasuries, they're going to affect different. Uh, parts of our market instantaneously, and, and there are knock-on effects. So to look at things in a siloed or, or you know discrete way, I think wouldn't have done the effort any justice. Uh, so I thought it was important to do a comprehensive look, um, to have a broad coalition of members really representing the entire economy participate in this effort and and, and provide recommendations. And, and the last thing I'll say to that question is. Um, you know, the politics behind this are obviously, uh, um, you know, they range in, in many different directions. And, and that's why I thought this particular group uh, of members, which, you know, range from large financial institutions and institutional investors 
to agricultural um, constituents and energy companies, academics, environmental groups, um, data providers, exchanges, clearinghouses, having that full range of, of stakeholders really present this report and say, climate's changing, there are financial market risks involved, and the financial markets can play a role in resolving this issue uh, and, and building a more resilient financial system and supporting this um, this transition to a net zero economy. Uh, so I thought that was really powerful. We had a 34 vote, 34 to zero vote supporting the report, which again, I think is a, is a fact that should not be uh, left unsaid. And um, I'm hope- hopeful that the report will raise awareness about this issue and how important financial market stability and resilience is important um, as we deal with this climate crisis in the decades to come. Yeah, and FIA has put out its own sustainability report. And I think from our vantage point, it was meant to complement um, the report that came out of the MRAC. Um, and it, I think for, for our for our members, um, we want to make sure that that uh, you know the public understands the importance of markets as, as part of a solution in this area. That as we move towards um, you know a, a, a carbon neutral society, that we're able to um, you know use markets to help in developing that solution. And that seems to come out in uh, the MRAC report as well. The importance of pricing carbon and allowing uh, markets to help in the reduction of some of those emissions. Um, give a, you know, that, that's a, a bold uh, recommendation, you know, pricing, pricing carbon. Um, what is your take on how best to do that? There's a variety of ways of either through tax systems or through, um, you know, putting a price on for allowances that allow markets to to, to trade these things, but do you have personally a thoughts on the best way to put a price on carbon? Sure, so two things. One, I wanna compliment you and FIA on your paper. It's excellent and I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's a, a perfect compliment to I think a lot of the work that's been going on in the space, but certainly the MRAC report. Um, two, you mentioned, and, and this will dovetail into my responding to your question, The the carbon price recommendation is the first recommendation. Uh, it's all about incentives. It's all about using the power of the financial markets um, and allocating capital in directions where the incentives lie. And right now, the report is pretty clear in that the incentives are not in the right place. And in order to have a smooth transition to a net zero economy, and in order to really unleash the power of the financial markets and allocating capital in the right direction in the right places, you need a price on carbon because right now the incentives are misaligned. And as much as you're seeing a lot of development and innovation in the sort of renewable energy space, it's clearly not going quickly enough. And, and it, that is in part because there are barriers and the incentives are not where they need to be. So that's the underlying logic. I couldn't agree with you more. A, a huge critical um, part of the the report reports sort of thesis is that you need to have better incentives and let financial markets sort of again unleash the power of financial markets so that we can have this transition and and resolve and mitigate the risks associated with climate change and carbon emissions regarding the the methodology really two methods you know you can just straight up put a, a carbon tax um, or you know, essentially living a fee on carbon tax, carbon emissions 
uh, and that would most likely come through um, the tax code. The other is the cap and trade system, which you, you also mentioned, uh, Walt, and that would more uh, more logically focus on sort of environmental and, and energy regulation. I, I personally don't have an opinion, and I think that is aligned actually with the report as well. The, the report is is very clear in what it suggests with respect to a carbon price. It just at the very onset says, really, in order to risk manage, we need a price on carbon, uh, but it doesn't opine on you know what is the best methodology. Obviously, you know a lot of economists uh, around the globe have been thinking about this for many years. I know policymakers have too, uh, but the report really just doesn't go into that specifically, as opposed to just saying. Uh, a price on carbon is what's needed to to align incentives and to manage the risk. The, the last thing I'll say about this, and I know the listeners, your listeners know this, but um, two unique things, right? We had 34 members unanimously support a, a carbon, a price on carbon. Uh, and although a lot of folks might think that's a decisive, divisive issue, which it is in many respects, the fact that you have this diverse group of members say, you know what, we have to start with the price on carbon is is pretty remarkable. And the other thing, it it sort of teaches me and 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 validates my thought about risk management. And the chair of the committee is Bob Litterman. Um, Bob is well known in financial circles, has been for many many years. He's an economist. He worked at Goldman and was head of Goldman's firm wide risk management. Um, and he also is the founder of the Black Litterman um, portfolio allocation model, uh, which he which he uh, uh, founded a number of years ago. Uh, and and with Fisher Black. And um, he has this unique understanding of both climate risk, climate change, risk management, and and sort of asset allocation that I think was a perfect combination to to lead, let him be the chair of the committee and sort of um, really be the thought leader on how the committee and what direction it would take. And I've learned from him, right, from a, from a risk manager's perspective, you don't have a price on an asset. You can't really... Um, understand what risk it has or what potential risk it will have in the future. So carbon is a negative externality. It sort of exists in our atmosphere. It obviously damages the atmosphere. Um, and without a price on it, we're not going to be able to create incentives to move away from emissions. And, and really, that's the thrust of, of the, the point in, in the first round. And, and uh, Bob Litterman, I mean, he I think what, you're right. He's got a great background for taking the lead on this report. Uh, but some of these some of these recommendations go beyond what's in the CFTC's authority to implement or to influence. Um, but let's pretend uh, in the future that you know you're chair of the CFTC, and this is something that we might want to further as as, as an agency. Are there parts of those recommendations that the CFTC could move on or that you might be able to 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 further in advance uh, that might help uh, advance this topic? So I think the uh, a few things that I, I think about from a CFTC perspective are certainly, and this goes across the board for all regulators, it's just a relationship with your registrants and what questions you're asking. And whether it's data that you're collecting or surveillance that you're uh, conducting, how do you uh, embed or start to think about questions differently? And and I don't think this is going to be. This is certainly not a major overhaul. It's not even necessarily a big change, but it's starting to think about what climate risk might pose to a registrant or an institution, and whether or not that institution is thinking about climate risk 
And if there are any actions needed to be taken, what would they be doing? I think that's at a very high level. That's one thing. From a CFTC perspective, you know, we collect a lot of very unique data. So I think it's important and incumbent on us as an agency to start sifting through the data and see if we see any patterns that might expose um, potential risk as it relates to climate change. And obviously, our constituency is very big and ranges from obvious, you know, the largest financial institutions to you know, farmers and ranchers um, and manufacturers across the globe. So how do we sift through the data that we collect? How do we think about it differently from a climate perspective? And how do we use participate in the larger global conversation, the national conversation to help provide a better data set that would, I think, lead to different methodologies or sort of matrix of how we evaluate and analyze climate risk? Um, another thing I would think about, you know, the CFTC is a sitting member of the FSOC. I, I've been a supporter of this for a, t- a while. The, the report recommends that the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which was created uh, in Dodd-Frank and sits within the Treasury Department, start to think about climate risk as a, as a you know, sort of systemic, potential systemic risk. And I think the CFTC, you know, as a member needs to play a role in that. The other element, and this was in the um, a report as well, which I think is really great. We all we all sort of re- remember the emergence of of crypto assets, really kind of three years ago, I think, on the on the national scene. Obviously, they've um, established um, uh, roots in in many different ways for good reason, because I think there's a lot of potential in that technology that's going to benefit our society uh, and our financial markets as a whole. But you know, thinking about my first few months uh, at the agency in that fall to winter 17 period when Bitcoin had its run up to $20,000 and there was a lot of attention, you know, both from an institutional and a retail perspective, uh, an outgrowth of that in many respects, um, at least that was built out of it um, and preceded certainly that run up in 2017 was Lab CFTC. And I think Lab CFTC, although it was, you know, founded a little bit earlier than that run up, like I said, um, that that attention and that development and that evolution of that crypto market um, really gave Lab CFTC a, a, a shot in the arm and a positive one um, to the point where I think we're, we're able to, you know, uh, convene and meet with stakeholders and talk about things and, you know, create a little bit of a sandbox. And I, I say that entire story just to reference Lab CFTC and some of the sandboxes that have been created. I think that's another opportunity in the climate space where we can use. Um, uh, the power of the sort of government and the public policy regime to convene to talk about uh, these issues in a sort of sandbox environment, in a lab environment, to be more innovative, to be, to be more thoughtful about the risks. I have, uh, I've always thought, and Walt, I would assume you agree with me, the derivatives markets are the most innovative, creative uh, markets in the world. They are the risk management price discovery tools that um, we need across the scope, right? I, I referenced this in my testimony yesterday. The CFTC is essentially the, the regulator you don't probably know, but that touches every part of your life and the economy from the price of bread to the price of gas at the pump. And I think this is another element uh, an opportunity for CFTC markets, both the private side and the, and the public agency, to work together to be innovative um, and to come up with hopefully risk management products uh, in the climate space that could uh, benefit society as a whole and, and um, our institutions and our financial markets be more resilient. So it, it sounds like that you are viewing this report, obviously, as the start of a long conversation with the industry and an approach of the CFTC on how it thinks about this 
newly identified uh, risk, you know, and how we approach it. So um, that's great. And, I, you know, I think over the years, um, you know, the CFTC has developed uh, advisory committees as things have new risks have presented themselves. Technology was one that was started, I think, when I was a commissioner because technology became a new uh, way of approaching risk. Um, and climate change is almost its own distinct risk at this point as this report identifies. So it's wonderful that you're starting to to think philosophically about how to approach that going forward. Thanks. And you know, I, I just want to give uh, a shout out to the members because it really um, is a testament to their work. They're you know volunteering their time. And also, you know, if we're going to think about that public-private divide, the report is a testament to how forward-thinking the private sector has been in this space and how um, they understand the risks uh, that climate change poses and what they want to do to sort of ensure, uh, you know, the protection and safety of their um, their institutions and their franchises and their members or their, you know, uh, constituencies, whatever it is. And um, I think, you know, climate change is a global problem. It's a problem of the commons, uh, and we need to work together. There certainly is a role for for everyone to contribute to to take part in the conversation and. You're right. This is a good starting point, but it also is a demonstration. Uh, I, I firmly believe about how far the conversation is uh, in the private sector circles. Well, and I, I was amazed that after we came out with our paper, uh, we do have some working groups on this topic within our membership. But just the support for wanting to pitch in and figure out solutions here, and and like you said, our our industry is very innovative, and so hopefully. Uh, I think you said all hands on deck. You know, it's important that all these solutions are being brought to bear on this really important topic um, because it's going to be necessary, I think, in order to address it over the coming years. Um, I did want to ask, you talked about the regulatory community. I'm just curious, um, you know, as you said, in economic terms, this is a negative externality. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, people who are releasing greenhouse gas may not be bearing the cost of that. And we're trying to, to fix that. That's in particular, that's that's important for um, the global community. Um, you know, we all have to sort of join in this together. If there's outliers that aren't joining in it, it doesn't help the situation. So have you started discussions after your report with the global regulatory community? Have anybody reached out to ask about it or to give support about the, the report's findings? They have, and it's been uh, uh, pretty awesome, quite frankly. Uh, I definitely had a lot of conversations before the report and going even back two years. I think uh, the conversations I had with folks, even domestically, but certainly overseas, uh, in many respects, planted the seeds in my mind about what the issues were, what the risks were and are, and then you know what could possibly be done and what I could do individually as a commissioner uh, at the CFTC. So uh, a testament to the work that's been done at the Bank of England, um, there's an organization, the NGFS, the Network for Green and the Financial System, which is a consortium of about 70 central banks and other sort of financial bodies. Uh, the Financial Stability Board has the TCFD, the Task Force on Financial Disclosures. Um, so there's a number of uh, efforts going on globally, both public and private, to sort of address these issues. And while well, he pointed it out, I talked about it a little bit earlier. This is, a, you know, carbon is a negative externality. It is a problem of the commons. If you pollute, it just goes into the atmosphere and it, it's not a cost to anyone, right? Uh, in the sense that um, no one owns the atmosphere. Um, but in the end, we all will um, 
unfortunately feel the consequences of that if we don't take action. Uh, and, and a huge challenge here is how quickly do you move? How do you manage the transition risk to a net zero economy? How do you deal with um, the sort of the, the engine and the foundations of our current economy uh, and have this transition without creating unintended disruptions or which can you know manifest in employment and economic productivity and any number of other things. So we have to be thoughtful, we have to be careful, and we have to do this uh, collectively. And as much as I think it's important we um, think about that transition risk, uh, we have to move forward because regardless of the transition risk that will occur, if we don't move, the environmental impacts and the repercussions will be greater than the transition risk. Um, I think the U.S. has a great opportunity here to have a leadership role. We've played that leadership role globally for decades. Uh, and as much as and, and, you know, I heard this at the hearing yesterday and it's a completely valid point. Um, you know, if, if we move, if we're first movers or if we move with a consortium of countries, but others don't move, it sort of nets itself out. So what's the point? You know, and then ultimately we're just going to be at an economic disadvantage. And that's a valid point. But ultimately, this is a potentially existential crisis. We are you know, the greatest country in the world, and we need to take a leadership role. And I think if we take the leadership role, um, uh, you know, others will follow, and, and good things will happen in the end. Well, I, I just got to add it. I couldn't agree with you more, right? This is about collaboration. This is about international harmonization, even the price on carbon, right? You can't have it just domestically. So there are a lot of challenges, but we've we have to leverage multilateral organizations. We have to leverage the tools that we use, whether it's an MOU, uh, and work with our international partners to, to really start to address the issue. Well, Russ, I just want to congratulate you on bringing attention and needed recommendations in this area. Um, you know, I, like the the media said, this is was its first of its kind, uh, but it took your foresight and vision in order to to make this happen. Appreciate it. We're supportive of those efforts. And I appreciate you coming on FIA Speaks today to talk a bit more about it. So thank you so much for your, your public service. Thanks, Walter. Appreciate it. It's always great to, to speak with you and be a part of the FIA community. Well, thanks again to Commissioner Benham for joining us today. And thanks to our audience for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIA Speaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to 
reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.